beginning of time there was nothing. But that all depends on your definition of nothingness. What is nothingness? A power button is pressed and suddenly big bang. After a while you get the Unix logging prompt. Have you ever wondered what led to this? What happened behind the scenes from the time you pressed the power button until this prompt appears? In this episode we're discussing the boot process and what is specific to Unix about it. I'm Vinam and you're listening to the Nixers Podcast. Like all good starts, let's start with defining the term we want to study. The word booting comes from bootstrapping, which is an expression that comes from a book called The Adventures of Baron Munchensen. Uh, to sum it up, it means that the process uh, is a process of self-start, uh, to start without external inputs. Now, in computing, the exact definition differs a lot. What we're talking about today is starting your computer. But what does that even mean? At what point can we say that the computer has finished booting? Some say that it's when the operating system finishes loading. Some say that it's when the operating system starts loading. Some say that it's when it's ready for user interaction. Some say that it's when the system is capable of running tasks and programs. The definition I find the most accurate is this one. The booting process is whatever happens before the system gets to a state where it does what it's supposed to do, what it's intended for. If it's for user interaction, then you need that. If it's a thin client that's supposed to open a web browser only, then it's not booted if the web browser is not there. And if it's a machine with no user interaction that just handles server requests, then it's it's that. It's just when the browser request can be handled. Now that we've defined it, we can explore every step of this process. Let's go through a rough overview of the steps taken and then jump into details later. There are three major big steps, sometimes referred to as phases or stages of booting. All steps end by the execution of another major important program that is started. The first one, the first step, consists of the BIOS, the basic input-output, which first does a power-on-self-test on the hardware and then handles the job of choosing, pointing the booting device and executing it. Then, second step, comes the loader. This phase starts at the MBR, Master Boot Record, but not limited to it because it's extremely small. It handles the job of choosing the kernel, its parameter, and the location on the disk for the kernel, and to load the kernel and, and execute it. And someone, some, sometimes phase one is considered the MBR, and phase two the loader, in some cases, and some uh, wiki definition. The third phase is the kernel. and this phase, the operating system ELF executable is started sometimes decompressed, self-decompressed, it probes all the hardware and starts the init process. And we can consider the init process as a part of the fourth phase or as a part of the third phase. And we can even consider the fifth phase where you can start user-level programs. 
that are really essential because of our definition of saying that the phase is something that executes a major important program for that system. So this is it. Now let's go into details about every one of those steps. The BIOS, the Basic Input-Output System. What's the BIOS? The BIOS is usually located at a read-only memory place, and what we call a ROM. It's the first code executed by the processor open boot. As soon as the power comes into the machine, the CPU does a reset command. It's a command set inside the CPU, which causes it to read from a hard-coded address and execute the code from in there. And that hard-coded address is the thing located uh, there. It's the ROM that's contained there. The role of the BIOS is to first pull hardwares on the system and check if it's really gonna be functional on boot. And this is regarded as something called POST, P-O-S-T, power on self-test. The power on self-test is what produces the beeps you can hear when there's a problem with the things connected to the motherboard. Those beeps indicate what the problem is and it's a way of giving info about the issue happening, about anything that's not functional. It's a sort of diagnostic tool. And there's actually a list of the beep codes that you can receive from this uh, uh, power on self-test. And also, this isn't, this isn't just about beeps. Some systems have LEDs of different colors indicating different issues. And some systems might have other things to indicate the errors on power on self-test. So this post, Power on self-test is the first function of the BIOS, sort of like a pre-boot function. The main function is to select the device to use and boot from, and this is sort of like a setup mode where there are a bunch of configuration of the BIOS. You can choose the boot order, change the motherboard time, set the security password on UEFI compliant boards, etc. So the BIOS has to first probe for possible connected and bootable devices. Once it's set, the last action the BIOS executes is to load the first sector of the boot device selected and transfer control to it. The first section is called the MBR, and that's what we're gonna discuss next. So conclusion about the BIOS, the BIOS loads the MBR of the selected bootable device. Wait, but what does this have all to do with Unix? Well, all operating systems must provide a way to load them. Unix is no different. Even if this isn't directly Unix related and more of a motherboard vendor relation, what needs to be mentioned though is that free Unix is tightly correlated with freedom and that most BIOS are proprietary. For that reason, there are many open source BIOS implemented, such as Coreboot and Libreboot. The issue with those is that at this level, the software is dependent on the hardware and you need a new software for every new hardware, and thus it doesn't support all the hardware, it is vendor-specific. But keep in mind that this is close to the Unix word because of the philosophy of shareable code and openness. Now let's move to the MBR. The MBR, what does it even stand for? It stands for Master Boot Record. 
it's located at the first sector of the device that is loaded by the BIOS. And usually the size of that sector is 512 bytes. But in some instances, such as the advanced format disk, it can go as big as 4096 bytes. The MBR has a partition table for the four partitions that can be kept on that disk, the so-called slices, and they occupy 64 bytes of that MBR, 500, 512 bytes. Plus there's a signature of four bytes and a timestamp of six bytes that only leaves between 434 and 446 bytes for the machine code that resides there. There's also what we call a GPT, GUID partition table, and that's sort of like a US alternative to MBR, and it removes the limitation on the number of partitions available on the disk. And it can go also as big as 4096 bytes instead of the 512. But anyway, the numbers are not really important there. What you need to remember here is that a sector is 512 bytes, or very small, and there's not a lot of space to execute ton of stuff on it. What happens from this point on differs depending on the intention of what needs to be achieved. The goal at this point is to start a kernel, and to do that you need something called a bootloader, or simply a loader. Sometimes the space of the MBR is sufficient for a very simple loader, sometimes it's not. You'll have to use some low-level tricks to make it fit into those 512 bytes. Now, this is something that changes from one Unix-like OS to the other. Linux doesn't provide any specific bootloader with it. It's distribution-specific, and it's open for any third party. Some of its bootloaders fit inside the MBR, some don't. In the BSD word, it's more like separated into stages. Uh, the bootloader comes with the operating system. They don't really have names, but uh, because you, you just call them the FreeBSD bootloader and it comes with the operating system itself. But sometimes they're referred to as boot0, boot easy, boot x, boot xx. Now, if one operating system is installed, then it might be simpler to just have the MBR search for that first bootable slice on the disk and run it directly because there's only one operating system on that device. Now if on the contrary there are more than one operating system on that device and you want to a way to choose the operating system then it's better to chain the programs, split them into parts, one loading the other so that it's more flexible and not limited to the 512 bytes that are default on most systems. So the MBR is that very small first section of a disk that can be loader or it's just a jump point to the loader. It lists all the bootable slices on that disk, the location of them, usually they are called volume boot record, and it executes the one selected. Let's discuss more about the loader itself, what's its role, what does it do, how much can it be extended if it's not only in the MBR but on the file system. And a little note here, you can dump the MBR using the DD command. The 
The bootloader can be located on the booted device file system or on the MBR, depending if it fits or not. Its role is to select and start the kernel via a menu, or just to start the kernel. If the bootloader doesn't fit inside the MBR, it is split between the MBR and a larger piece that is stored on a location that is invoked by the MBR. In that case, the bootloader should have knowledge of the partition on that file system and if they are bootable or not. A more sophisticated loader, in this case, it's also able to give arguments to the kernel. Like any other programs, the kernel takes arguments. The standard boot manager on FreeBSD is boot0, also called boot easy. On NetBSD, it's called bootxx. Each BSD comes with its own bootloader. They are integrated. On Linux, on the other hand, as we've said, it doesn't come with a built-in bootloader, but it relies on third parties, which can boot many kinds of operating system, such as Grub and Lilo. Now let's just note here that the bootloader for the BSDs directly boots into the system and it loads the kernel Im images directly accessing the hard disk. And that to multi-boot other operating system, you have to switch bootloaders to use another one. They sometimes offer a menu though to choose the different kernels, but from the same operating system. The first approach to writing a bootloader is a lighter one as it doesn't have to understand the underlying file system. The second approach is to require a config file that contains a list of physical sectors occup occupied by the kernel images so that the bootloader can load them. Now if the location of that image changes and the first uh, case then it becomes an issue because you'll have to repopulate the MBR, recompile the code. And the second one, you'll have to change the, config the configuration file only. However, the loader will need a file system driver in that case because it will need to read the file somehow. Grub, the bootloader Grub, uses that second approach. And when we're at it, let's list some bootloader frequently used in the Unix world. There is Grub1, Grub2, Lilo, which was discontinued in December 2015, unfortunately. There are the BSD ones like BootEasy, BootX, BootXX. There is SysLinux, that is only for FAT file system, DasUboot, etc. So why? Why that many? How do they differ? So some fit in the MBR and are lightweight, some don't, as we said. Grub doesn't fit into the MBR. Lilo does fit, and surprisingly, it also has a menu to choose the kernel to boot from, but it doesn't, doesn't understand or parse the file system layout. And they also differ because they, they can be used on different media. They differ by the licenses they use, the architecture supported, the file system supported, that they can read the different configurations, etc. And the configuration for the bootloader are usually in the slash boot, and even the kernel images are loco located in slash boot. They also differ by which operating system they are able to execute which means the types of executable they can start. Otherwise, you'll have to transition to another bootloader and leave it to handle the booting. 
Here, let's remind ourselves that elf type of executable is the standard on most Unix. So that's what we mean by the loader loads the executable. It means it executes the elf executable of the kernel. And as we've said, the bootloader can give arguments to that kernel like any other program, like any other elf program. So it must also be able to start that program, load it in memory and execute it. Some kernel can even be loaded over the network through something called a PIXE, P-X-E, a preboot execution environment. And you can find more info about it in the show notes. This is also referred to as diskless booting. And sometimes it comes supported inside the BIOS built in, or sometimes it comes inside the bootloader. Now back on topic. There are many arguments or variables that a kernel can take. You can find a list of all the nifty tricks in the show notes. This is called a loader line or kernel flag when you pass arguments from the bootloader to the kernel. And finally, the kernel is loaded in memory and starts executing. Now let's jump into that. The kernel is located on the file system, or at a specific uh, location that is pointed to by the loader. It is then loaded in memory, but sometimes it is compressed and needs to be decompressed before being loaded. It is unzipped, or more like self-unzipped, because it's self-decompression. The kernel needs to probe devices, initialize them for use, and do a bunch of other stuffs to make the system usable, such as mounting the file system using a temporary file system, start the init process, set up network cards, etc. There's most of the time a temporary RAM file system, initRD, which stands for init RAM disk, but not always named this way. And uh, this is used by the kernel as a temporary root file system until the kernel is booted and the real root file system is mounted. It also contains necessary drivers compiled inside of it, which help it to access the hard drive partition and other hard hardware. Let's go a bit into details here. Like all programs, the kernel has a main function. It's written in C, so it does, and most kernel are written in C. The most noticeable thing that happens is the initialization of the data structure used across the operating systems. So the kernel has queues to manage scheduling and the structure used to represent files. And this structure on, on the Linux is called inode. And on OpenBSD, for example, it's vnode. And there's also the initialization of the device driver and the switch of the processor to a protected mode and the initialization of the interrupt descriptor table used for mapping the interrupt of the CPU to system calls understood by the operating system. The main goal is to reach a state where multitasking can start, where processes have a meaning. Before that, they don't have a meaning. And we know that every process is created by calling fork on the kernel, yet there has to be a first process that is started. And this one is done explicitly uh, doing the fork itself. It's not really a fork. The kernel is more or less the process zero, uh, and it's detached in the background, and it gives rise to the process number one, the init process. The init process is, in 99% of the case, the slash sbin slash init. That is what 
is being executed. It's sort of like a go-to place. The kernel then enters its idle mode waiting for inputs and the memory used by the temporary file system that the kernel needed to boot is freed. Let's talk about that init process a bit. The init process, but hey, this isn't a podcast about init systems, but yep, the init system bootstraps the user space and manages the subsequent processes so we can talk a bit about it. Why not? Let's list some init process, sysv, systemd, upstart, runit. The role of the init system is to do user space initialization. It executes a bunch of shell scripts at startup. Amongst them can be configurations and daemons, the so-called services. Usually there's a certain order in which those services are started and thus the init process needs a way to manage this to know which one comes before the other. Uh, Let's take for example the sysv. It has the concept of run levels and it also exists in upstart. Each run level is executed at different stage Now, each and every init process has a different way of handling what it does. Some do more than others, some do less. They all have different way of being configured and this single topic has raised many polemics. Let's note here that on Linux the init process can be specified as a loader line inside the bootloader, as init equal. Finally, after the init process, the login screen finally appears. Let's talk about some cool stuffs and tips. There are many distributions used as quick boot. What is quick boot? It's an operating system that boots really fast but has limited usage, such as simple internet access. Some even come inside the BIOS of some distributors. So from the BIOS, you can directly go into a Linux distribution. Let's name a few, Splashtop, Instant Web Kiosk, Hyperspace, Instant On. Another cool thing to know is that the documentation about booting a BSD system are almost exactly the same for FreeBSD and Dragonfly BSD. It seems as if they are just copied from one another. Talking about that, there are many, many good documentation page, man pages about the booting process. So on on NetBSD, simply type man after boot or man boot and you can read about it. Other cool tip, you can troubleshoot stuff from the bootloader itself if it offers commands. And that highly depends on the bootloader, but check it out. On BSD and Linux, there's also a single user mode which you can uh, use for debugging. And it's a a mode with a high privilege and it drops you in for repairing partition. And if you're not able to boot correctly, it's a great way to fix stuff. On BSD, you can just choose it on the loader. And on Linux, you might have to specify the init process and the kernel flag to point to the shell of your choice. So instead of loading the init process, it loads your shell and gives you full access to the system. One hard thing to do is to analyze the boot process. It's very hard to do because you don't have file system access to write logs to. There are some NetBSD researchers that wrote a paper about optimizing uh, the boot 
and discuss this uh, a bit. You can check it out in the show notes. They had to write a kernel logging function to be able to track everything they needed. Other than that, you can also analyze the boot process starting from the point the init process has started. And many init processes have that analytic analytic tool. Systemd has first made a big claim with its systemd analyze tool, which can even output graphs and tell you what is eating up the most of the boot time. And one last thing you can uh, check out is uh, splash screens. So splash screens are those sort of fancy overlays images that you can hide the logs that appear at boot so it's for end users so they don't panic because they see a black screen with some text on it. And there are many availables for many distribution and they do different things and you you mainly just put an image of a certain type and inside a directory and point to it. That's it. So this is all for the tips. Let's wrap this up, let's conclude. Uh, I didn't go into extreme low-level assembly details here, neither specific, really, really specific details. And if you want to do that, if you want to go into details, you can refer to the show notes, there's enough content. My goal here is to provide the people that have no overview of the booting process a clearer understanding of what is happening so that they can debug their own Unix-like operating system and also appreciate what is happening at this point. So this is it folks, this is the booting process, hope you enjoyed it. Let's move into the section when we talk about what we did last week and this week. Last week we talked about system calls. Uh, I did get some good uh, reviews on that. It was a good podcast for the introduction to system calls. I also didn't go down the assembly line. I didn't go down into great, great details about it. But that's a good overview. So if you have really no idea what system calls are, why they happen, why they're there, etc. Just listen to last week's episode. And it was a great way to introduce it. This week, uh, this week I started writing a new blog post. I started also filtering my online profiles, going through search engine. And it's pretty fun. Uh, I started a new ASCII art robot. Uh, I'm finalizing uh, a web page I'm working on. And that's about it mainly. Now, uh, yeah, contribution. So as usual, as usual, as usual, if you like what you're listening to, you can contribute in multiple ways. The first easy way is to just give your appreciation on IRC or on the forum's extended podcast threads. It uh, gives us a push to know we're going in the right direction. The second way to contribute is by adding some relevant information on those extended threads. A fourth way would be to help me fill the transcript on some episodes that are missing some. And the last way would be to join me on the podcast. And you can do that by asking for a podcast key on IRC or on the forums. And with that key, you can log into the user interface on podcast.nixers.net. And you, on this interface, you set your available time for the next week. And then 
the best time, the best common time is chosen and you can join at that time. And remember that you can find all the episodes on this little short link, podcast.nixers.net slash what, W-H-A-T. Or you can check the feed URL that I just mentioned, podcast.nixers.net slash F-E-E-D, podcast.nixers.net slash feed. So this is all for today's episode. Let's hope you understand what happens after you press the power button and the Big Bang starts. What happens after the beginning of times, after nothingness. This was Venom for the Nixers podcast. <laughs>